joy to be back. I've been spoiled rotten the last uh, 24 hours or so, and uh, I don't mind that at all. My wife may not like it when I get home, but uh, I've sure enjoyed it. It's uh, been a delight to be with you, and I appreciate our association, our fellowship in things that are spiritual. I want to talk with us this evening about the gospel of Christ, and as we consider this particular subject, I'm going to have several slides. Most of the passages will be on the overhead. And this is uh, basically uh, a part of a lesson that we do where I'm at when we have a gospel meeting where we invite friends and neighbors and people we come in contact with through the flea market where we reach out and so forth. And this last Tuesday night, I had a study, a second study with some folks, and I went through this material with them. Because um, through experience and a lot of reflection and talking with Nick Wichard, who is the other elder there, we're both on the same page when we do studies. Sometimes it's easy to drag things out. We're trying to lay some good foundation and so forth, and, and I'm certainly for that. Don't misunderstand me. But there have been so many situations that I've been in through the years where I get an opportunity to study with a person a time or two, and I'm laying out some things about authority and things of that nature which need to be laid out, and then something happens. They, they move or something happens, and they have still not heard the gospel of Christ. And so what I, what I did this last time is say, this, this next class is going to be a little longer than, than what we'll normally do. I try to hold them to an hour normally. This one's going to be a little bit longer. Now, to give you some consolations, I see panic everywhere. This will not be an hour and a half. Okay. But, uh, but in, in all seriousness, just an opportunity, I, I want them to get the big picture. And so this evening, uh, I, I want to go through that material, and it's going to be very basic material, but, it, but very fundamental in the relationship that we have. <coughs> I, I normally start out with the, f the first part of the lesson is why I believe in God, why I believe the Bible is His Word. And then that leads us to the problem of sin. And the second lesson we do in the gospel meeting is God's solution to that problem. But we're, so we're starting here with the big problem tonight. And we have a big problem. When God created the heavens and the earth and made man, put them in the Garden of Eden, he said, the day that you eat from this particular tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. What happened when Eve and then Adam ate of that fruit is they died. Now, there were physical ramifications, and it would be my perception of, of the biblical teaching that that's where sickness and many of the problems that we face in this world came from. But if I understand correctly, the idea that we see is that when we sin, our sin separates us from God. Now, our relationship with God isn't one where, well, I have just a little bit of sin, and so I'm in fellowship with God and everything is okay. If I understand correctly... The book of 1 John chapter 1 and 2, God is absolutely holy and there is no darkness in him at all. And I cannot be in fellowship with God if I have sin on my soul. It says in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we're able to have fellowship with him and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. He goes ahead in verse 9 to tell us that we must confess those sins. But it's not like I, I've done a, an overhead this way before a, I'm telling my age there, but I've done a, a, a chart before this way. Look at it. Now, he, this guy really knows what I'm talking about. It was over it. God, I draw this, this white 
circle, there's absolutely no darkness in it all. Then I, do, I, I have one over here, it's dark, it's just all black. And then I have one in the middle, it's got some polka dots. And sometimes we think, well, we're, we're sort of in a polka dot in our fellowship with God because we know we're imperfect. But we can't be walking in fellowship with God that way. Our sins are forgiven so that we can walk with God. Now, there, there are a lot of ramifications, and there have been discussions, all kinds of things about other aspects. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the reality of my relationship with God. And when I sin, it separates me from God. It hinders the relationship that I have with God. Now, I have asked this question the last couple of years when I go to Africa, and it has been amazing to me everybody answers it just right. So if I live this way, I sin, and my sin has separated me from God, and now I die like this. What happens? And they tell me, we'll be ever, forever separated from God. A lot of them say, oh, you'll go to hell. They, they have heard humanity, many people have a concept of this already, that this reconciliation has to take place. And so what happens is that we as human beings, when we sin and are separated from God, we have a really big problem. We don't have time to develop all this, but in Romans, the first three chapters, just sort of lumping it in, Paul unfolds in the clearest way that we are all under condemnation. We usually quote sort of one of the summary verses of that, saying, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by the time we get to that point, our, our, I think Paul intends our, our chin is on the floor like we are undone. We are absolutely hopeless. And then he picks up in chapter 3 and says, now wait a minute. You're not just on your own. God has made a way that you can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he takes off then in chapter 3 and talks about that. There is hope. And we all know Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for there, therein is God's power, the power of God unto salvation. Now, we will have time to develop it. Verse 17 talks about the righteous man shall live by faith which is actually a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 and in verse 4, under the law of Moses, how people had to live. And if you look in Romans chapter 4, it starts off with Abraham and talks about how Abraham lived before the law. He was justified by faith. This kind of obedient faith has always been what God required of man. And you can say whatever you want to about it, but I believe that's the facts of the book. Now, God has said you'll live by certain things under the days of Abraham and Moses and us, certainly but a man who wants to walk with God and live righteously with God is going to walk by faith that says, Lord, speak. I will try to do what you want me to do the best I can. And certainly, I'm going to need his grace to get on the other side of that. God has reached out. I've got this problem, and God has reached out. The question is, will I reach back to God? Will I respond to God's graciousness and what God has done to help me with this big problem? In Romans chapter 6, in verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I ask folks, what, what does it mean, wages? Well, if I go to if I work for Ken, and he says, Gail, I'll pay you so much for digging this ditch for me out here. At the end of the week, I will pay you. Those will be your wages. That's what this job will pay. Well, what does sin pay? Eternal death. We're talking about here eternal life and eternal death. That's what sin pays. And if I want to settle that account on my own, then I can spend eternity separated from God. But God says, there's another way. And you see that that's found here. 
there's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 9, I believe this expresses that it's God's will that all be saved. He wills us to be saved. He wants all men to come to repentance. That is God's will. And so I want you to understand that. There, there's someone who said long ago in, in, in ancient writings, not the Bible, that the Jews had a concept that Abraham was standing by the, the gates of, of torment, and if there was a Jew that accidentally got that way, uh, he, he would be turned around and sent the other way. And there was a man who wrote about that, and he said this, that there's no one who will ever enter the, the, the state of eternal torment who will be able to say, I am here because God didn't love me. If you spend eternity in hell, or your family, or your neighbor, or so, anybody else in this world, or me, it's not because God didn't love me. It's not because God didn't reach out. It's not because God didn't want something better for me. He did, and He does. And in the book of Titus, we see God's mercy and God's grace. And I'll have a chart up here that will have this text on it. It doesn't have chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. But it tells us in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness. We haven't worked it out and earned it on our own power. But how does this come about? According to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it's not on the basis of our Uh, meritorious works, that we have earned this because of our works. Obedient faith, necessary. But no flesh will be justified on this basis. The book of Romans and Galatians chapter 3, nail that thing down where you can close your eyes and still see it. It's not going to happen that way. You know that and I know that if we've been studying our Bibles. But he does tell us it's on the basis of his mercy and that we are justified by his grace. I understand mercy is that God does not give us what we deserve. My sin, when I chose to sin, separates me from God. And what I deserve is an eternal damnation. That's the wages of Gale's sin. God says, that's what you deserve, but I'm not going to give you what you deserve. But I am going to give you this great gift, and that's grace. We talk about unmerited faith. I'm giving you this big gift. And that's found in Christ Jesus. That's found in Christ. And this word justified here in blue in the middle, it just basically means that we've been acquitted. We stand that our debt has been removed. That comes about by what God has mercifully and graciously done in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if I want to be reconciled to God, if I want this separation from God to be taken care of, there's only one way that's going to happen, and that's in God's way, and that's in Christ. And so as we look at this, We find that it was God's kind intention in verse 4 that I don't have up here. And in the New American Standard, I I added down here at the bottom a couple of verses that I I love. The New American Standard talks about his kind intention or his purpose. Now, I tell people that rings my bell. It's this, this fatherly, kind intention. I want to do you good. And that's a powerful passage in Ephesians 1 that talks about what God had planned and unfolded. But it's also necessary to know that in every spiritual blessing is in Christ, as we'll see in just a minute. Now, this debt that we 
acquired because of our sin. It demands that a holy and a just God will, will deal with it, will pay for that debt. He cannot justly and righteously just ignore the debt of my sin. The debt of my sin must be accounted for and paid for. There's a passage in Romans 3.26 that says that he might be just and the justifier. In order for God to do what is right, to do what is just, do right in this, to justify us, he has to act justly. Now, Jason here, he's a nice guy. And so we're, we we're go downtown and we're looking at this, this uh, brand new pocket knife. So, man, Jason, that is a great pocket knife. That is the most beautiful knife I've ever seen in my life. And Jason says, well, you just reach down there and grab it and walk on out of that door, and I'll take care of that. And so then I walk out, and Jason just turns around and walks right out after me. <laughs> Would that work? Then we'd be thieves. We'd be unrighteous. But Jason goes up to the counter and says, you know, here's $100 for the nicest knife we've ever seen. And he pays that debt. That's the right and the just thing to do. God couldn't just pretend because of his holiness and character and righteousness. Many of those spectrums I don't even fully understand. He could not righteously just say, ah, let's just forget about it and pretend like that debt never existed. And so he sent his son to the cross so that he could do what's right. He could be just in this so that we might have a way to be justified or made right. Have our sins forgiven and be reconciled to God. This is what God did. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1.18. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's the basis. Now that ought to make me grateful. And I'll just tell you before we go on, and I forget to draw this point out. What I hope this lesson will do is, is three things. Number one, make these matters clear. Number two, make us grateful for what we have. And number three, compel us to reach out to a lost and a dying world so they might have what God offers. Because separated from God, eternally, you and I and they will perish. United with God, we will be able to be with him for eternity. In the New Testament, this uh, pair of words occur some 88 times in Christ. In Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He does that where? In Christ. Chapter 6 tells us the heavenly places are in the spiritual realm. That's probably a good way to express that. There it talks about both the good and the bad forces in chapter 6. And this term occurs. But in this spiritual arena, the spiritual realm, every spiritual blessing we have in the heavenly places is in Christ. That's where it's at. We are called through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 uh, tells us that. 
He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's see what that means. How did he do that? We're not going to look at all this passage, but I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul especially is talking about his own work as an apostle, that he is an ambassador of God. Now, we can extrapolate from that our own relationship. We have God's word, God's message, and we're taking this out to the lost and dying world. It's in verse 17 that he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. In verse 19, he goes ahead to say, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How how did he make this reconciliation? Not counting their sins or trespasses against them. And he has committed to us what? This message, this, this word of reconciliation. God's way, God's message, God's scheme, God's plan of how we can be reconciled in Christ. Now notice that. There's a great, great big word in there. Two letters, but it's a big one. If we are in Christ. If we are in Christ. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ. And so that brings up certainly a great question about the gospel as we've introduced and about our relationship to Christ. The gospel, as we made reference to in Romans 1.16 a moment ago, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is something that has to be obeyed. Now remember, here's the problem. Sin separates me from God. When Jesus comes back and, and he brings this world to an end and the day of judgment is in place, that's what he's talking about here. At the second coming of Jesus, he will deal out be dealing out retribution that that word just means the carrying out of righteousness is a literal is literally what it says god will deal righteously with this he will carry out what righteously must be done that's the word retribution in in the new american standard here to those who do not know god well what's the problem what's the wrath of god coming against the sins of men and jesus blood delivers us we can look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, Romans chapter 5, and see it says that. But, but we're delivered from the wrath of God. Well, folks who do not know God are still in their sin. But that's not where the verse quits. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This gospel must be obeyed. Well, why? Why will God's wrath and retribution come against those who obey not the gospel? Because sin is still upon them. They're still separated from God. This is a gospel that must be obeyed. Well, in the New Testament, we're told the instructions that God gave his disciples is so they go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Romans or in Mark 16, 15, and 16, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And so we find the nature of this that a person in hearing this gospel is going to believe and be baptized to be saved. Saved from what, as we've seen already? Our sins. If we do not do that, we will be condemned. Why? Because of our sins. Now, that's a fair and level playing field from that aspect. God will only deal righteously, and my sins cause me great problems. So we call this sometimes the Great Commission. I, I just tell people that just means a big job. We, 
we throw that around here and think everybody knows what that means. Everybody in the world doesn't. But God just gave them this big job. You go tell everybody about the saving message, the blood of Christ and how to obey the gospel. And so he gave them this great commission, this big job. He said, go preach the gospel to all creation. You know Matthew chapter 28. Many of you here have heard this hundreds of times. And we see the authority of Christ. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Well, how do you do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it continues, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So he tells his disciples that in that 40-day period between his crucifixion and his ascension. Acts, the first three verses of Acts 1 tells us he was with his disciples for 40 days there. Pentecost is just going to be 10 days later on the 50th day. And so as you work that out, it's in that period that he tells them uh, both what we just read in Mark and here in Matthew and in Luke chapter 24, verse 46 through 48. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, <clears throat> that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. So we ask the question, Jesus gave his disciples this great commission, this big job. <clears throat> he has told them what we just read. So what did they go preach? <coughs> Pardon. What did they go preach? Did they go preach something else? Did they go pro proclaim whatever felt good to them, whatever they thought, whatever they considered the need of the moment? No. They wouldn't preach what Jesus told them to preach. The first time we have a record of that is in the book of Acts, the second chapter. We're not going through the book of Acts this evening, but really the book of Acts is just a commentary or a historical document of telling us about the disciples going out into all the world with the gospel. And that tells us some other things, but it tells us about the Acts of the Apostles as they go out and take the saving gospel into the world. God was counting on them and they were committed, and they went forward and did his will. But the very first time that happens in Acts chapter 2, and I wish I had more time to develop this chapter, but we get down to verse 36. These people are, are, are brought to the point of conviction. There, there's a therefore in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain what, what's happened. This Jesus you crucified has been made both the Lord, he's, he's the boss, he's the commander, and he is the Christ, the Messiah. That's just the Greek term for the Hebrew word Messiah. He is that chosen one. This Jesus is him. You killed him on the cross. He said he was God's son. You said he's not and killed him. God vetoed your vote and raised him from the dead and said, yes, he is, just like David said in Psalm 16. And so they're brought to that point of conviction. And they say, men and brethren, what must we do? The end of verse 37. What shall we do? In verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, to everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked and, and perverse generation. Added that there. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, is this anything different than what Jesus told them to go preach? No, 
This is exactly what he told them to go preach. And it is interesting, it doesn't say that they believed. <laughs> but the implications of what are said, they did believe, and their actions. It is necessary. You can look at lots of passages show the necessity of that. And the Bible does teach by implication. Like it or not, it does. We do. As we look at this, those who received his word, what did they do? They obeyed it. Their faith pressed them to go forward and do what God had said. Now, we could go on through the book of Acts and see this is the same message that they preached again and again and again. It tells us here the purpose of the baptism was for forgiveness of sin. It was predicated on belief in Christ Jesus as God's Son, the resurrected Messiah, and a repentant heart, turning from sins. That confession would certainly be involved here. They, they recognize, they admit, they confess, they speak the same man. He is God's Son, and we are a follower of Him. But we go back to our question earlier about the significance of being in Christ. How do we get in Christ? In the book of Romans, chapter 6, in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now notice the things I have in, in color up here. Baptized into Christ, baptized into his death, baptism into death. We're united with him. And in the blue, again, you see, see these things that, that magnify that. Verse 6 goes ahead, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Again, we could just park right there, camp, and look at this, see a lot of things, and we'll come back to some of this in just a minute. But let's go to another passage in Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 7. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. This is how one puts on Christ and is done through obedient faith, as we've already presented. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, again, what's our question? How do we get into Christ? If it, Romans chapter 6 has shown us that, that we are baptized into Christ. Without faith? No, that doesn't have anything to do with the baptism we're talking about. It is a faith-driven. It is a mentality and a heart set is, I will be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, like in Matthew 28. Make disciples. We're not just getting people wet. We're, we're assisting people in obeying the gospel of Christ to have their sins forgiven, to be put into Christ in relationship with Christ so sins are forgiven so they can walk and live for him and then with him in eternity. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, having been buried with him, with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, this is from the ESV. It throws that word powerful working. New American Standard just says the working of God. 
But the question I ask here, first of all, is who does the working in baptism? I have many religious friends who say that what happens is that baptism cannot be necessary for salvation because baptism is a work that we do. Let me ask you a question. Do you have to confess Jesus? Who has to do that? They throw that one out. That, that one doesn't count. Well, what about believing? Who has to believe? Unless you believe a Calvinistic doctrine that, that says that you are so defiled, you can't do anything on your own, the Holy Spirit has to cause that. No, you believe, you repent, you confess, and you are baptized. But where's the working here? What does it say? Buried with him in baptism, which you, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. It's God that does the working at this point. Why then? How? Because he said so. And because he said, here's how it will work. And he does it by the blood of Christ. Do I understand everything about everything? I don't. Do I understand everything about anything? Probably not. <laughs> but I understand everything I need to know because of what God says. And it is by faith. Faith come by, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is what God's word says. That moves me to a place of conviction. Uh, the, the word faith comes from a word that, from, that means persuasion. We hear the evidence, we are persuaded. It brings us to a point of conviction. That's what faith is. Faith in God, faith in Christ, trust in Him. And this kind of faith that we've seen is obedient faith. We find that it's through faith in the working of God. This is what God had to say about it. Now here's our passage on the left that we're just looking at. From Romans 6 in this passage, notice these things. If we're not baptized in the baptism of Christ, then we've not been buried with Him. We've not been raised with Him. Not had God's working in this. Not been made alive. We've not had our trespasses forgiven. These passages tell us these are the purposes, our engagement and relationship and the results of our baptism. It is, again, I'll repeat, just, just for the sake of this audience, it is not simply getting people wet. I'm not interested in getting people wet. I will assist them obey the gospel of Jesus Christ in baptism, and they'll be disciples of Christ. Now, I think most in this audience understand that, but sometimes that's been blurred through the years. We think we get them wet, they got it made. And if that's the case, I'm going to get four of the biggest thugs I can find and we'll start snatching people and dunking them. But we all know it doesn't work that way. And I make this point in part because sometimes people in the, in the religious world make that accusation. People are baptized and then they go on living like they did before. <laughs> that's not right. That's what they would say. And you know what? That's not right. <laughs> That's what the God would say. But that does not annul the truth and the will of God. So let's just get back as we press forward trying to make disciples. Now, again, I ask you a question here. These, these folks, many, many folks will say, <clears throat> our sins are forgiven at the point of faith and confession, and then we're baptized to keep the commands of God. Well, let me ask you a question here. We were dead in sin, but we're made alive in Christ. Who do you bury? Do you bury people that are alive? Or do you bury people that are dead? These passages say we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
And as we die to sin, we repent of that sin, that man that has been given to sin is buried. And by the powerful working of God, through the forgiveness of, in Christ's blood, as we are raised out of that baptism, God says He will forgive us. And we are made alive. And that's what Colossians 2 said down here. Some of that's not quite straight. I'd get that sort of messed up a little bit. But God made us alive together, having forgiven us our trespasses. It's at that point that our sins are forgiven. This passage in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, is a beautiful passage. I mentioned, I made allusion to that in chapter 4 a while ago, and talks about Abraham at the beginning of the chapter. And Abraham was reckoned righteous before God. He didn't have any room to boast. But that every soul that, uh, of man that has sinned, that will stand just before God, is going to be on the basis that God forgives. And that of, of the obedient faith of Abraham, complying with God's expressed will, he walked by faith. And in Genesis 15, God says that Abraham was reckoned righteous before God. That's, that's spoken of here at the beginning of chapter 4. Then he slides on to David and says, and, and David says the same thing. And he quotes the 32nd Psalm here and says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's what we've been studying all evening, isn't it? God forgives sin so that sin can be wiped away. So I can be reconciled to God. God doesn't take that sin into account so I can stand just or pardoned before God. And let me throw in here a disclaimer. Uh, a friend I was traveling to Sierra Leone with likes to, when he teaches Proverbs, he says, God will forgive you of your sins, but sometimes nature won't. Yeah, my sins can be forgiven, but sometimes I make choices that have consequences. And I've got to live with those consequences doesn't make those go away sin is forgiven i can be reconciled to god but if i murder a man before i obey the gospel and i have forgiveness i'm still going to jail but when i die i'm not going to jail <laughs> i am freed from sin so i can be with god so understand that i like that that way to express it god will forgive you but nature won't there are consequences to our choices and we have to live with those we live in a society that doesn't, doesn't want to think that that's true, that there are consequences to our decisions and our actions, but there are, and there continues to be. And reality is still reality, no matter how our society and our media and our religious facilities in this country and around the world want to spin it. Reality is still reality. By the way, you can see this big yellow box up here. The gospel, good news, this is great news forgiveness God has reached out in Christ the question is will I reach back will I respond to God's gracious offer his mercy found in Christ will I obey the gospel of Christ out of an obedient faith a repentant heart confess Jesus is God's son and submit my will to his in his powerful working in baptism in immersion in water forth forgives us from our sins so I can walk in newness of life. I can keep learning His will, as Matthew 28, 20 said, and I can go forward following Him. It is the best life in this world, even if you're persecuted, and it's the only life that's worth having in eternity. God loves you that much. This evening, if you have not obeyed this gospel, all things are ready. 
as we sing this invitation song in a minute, if you'd like to come forward, brethren here will take your confession of faith in Christ Jesus and baptize you into Christ. But the only time this invitation is extended isn't just for these few minutes. This is an invitation of our Lord 24-7. And so when this service is over, if you've got your Bible out tonight, going back and reflecting on these things and say, well, that's right, that's what I need to do. You get hold of, of uh, Ken or one of the, the elders or somebody here, your neighbor, if there's a brother or sister, and go take care of this. And if you've obeyed that gospel and your soul is not right with God, you cannot afford to lay your head down tonight not being right with God. If that's something that needs to be taken care of privately in your home or wherever, you, you take care of it. If there's a brother or sister you're at odds with, then humble yourself. Go square that with them and then come before God. If it's behavior, if you're connected to, to some kind of physical failings of the lust and you're practicing, you're acting in ways that is displeasing to God, repent of that. Because what have we seen? What's God want? As he invites every one of us of all of humanity, he wants us to come to him, to be reconciled, to walk with him. If you're subject this evening, won't you come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected?